Kristen Seavey. This is Murder, She Told. Sarah Lee Porter was born in the city of Midland, Michigan, a sprawling grid of streets and people in the flat Midwest, home to 42,000 residents. Between 1966, the year of her birth, and the 1980s, her family moved to nearby, town-sized Gladwin, Michigan. They lived right near the town center, just a few blocks from the courthouse. When Sarah was 20 years old, she had her first child, a girl named Roxanne. Two years later, when she was 22, she gave birth to another girl, Angelica. She and their father were together for almost 10 years throughout the majority of her 20s. She grew up with acute asthma, and it inspired her to work as a respiratory therapist as an adult, helping patients with breathing disorders. She often traveled to patients' homes for treatment, maintenance, and checkups. She was treating an elderly woman in nearby Midland and got to know her son, Harold Knight. Harold, who went by Butch to those who knew him, was 18 years Sarah's senior. Though she was still with the father of her children, she fell for Butch and wanted to be with him instead. Around 1995, when Sarah was 29 years old, she got a divorce from her first husband. Her oldest daughter was about 10 years old, and her younger sister was eight. Roxanne later recalled that Butch was very charming, showing her mom a lot of attention and affection. He brought her flowers and took her to dinner. He would take her on trips and they would pack picnic lunches. It was a real love story. Once the divorce was finalized, Butch would be with Sarah and her two daughters nearly every weekend. They often took trips to a nearby lake house as a family. Butch won her over, and they would often write love notes to one another. Every Valentine's Day, Butch got her an oversized card, and she called him her everyday Valentine. He called her his honey bunny. Six years later, on January 18, 2001, Sarah and Butch got married. They eloped. They formed a blended family. Butch had children from a previous relationship as well, but they were adults and were out of the house. Sarah was 34 years old, and Butch was 52. A few years after the marriage, Butch became abusive to Sarah's teenage daughters, Roxanne and Angelica. At first, she found it hard to believe that the love of her life was capable of violence. But Roxanne later explained that once her mom accepted the truth of the matter, she took action, threatening to go to the police and end the marriage. Roxanne remembered Butch treating her like she was stupid, taunting her and telling her that she had no future. Once on a fishing trip, he said, You know, you are not the smartest. You better figure something out because I'm not going to be paying for you forever. She was just 14 years old. She remembered how Butch's personality would change depending on who he was talking to like a chameleon. She felt he often played her mom and her sister against one another. Butch was very critical of Sarah, too, always keeping her on her heels. He would deliver unfunny insults with a smile and a laugh and put up a pretense that he was just joking. He would chide people not to be so sensitive. He was a bully with a huge ego. Angelica remembered an incident with Butch in 2003 when she was 15 years old. They were at a lake house together and she was in the water. She ended up under the dock in the water and Butch was above her on the dock. 
He was leaning down, pretending to help her with his hands in the water. In reality, he was trying to push her under. She was fighting to breathe. But Sarah couldn't believe that her husband was capable of that type of violent behavior. She thought that Angelica was not telling the whole truth. Though it's not clear why, Angelica ended up in foster care shortly after the attempted drowning incident, and Roxanne joined the military the same year, at just 17 years old. Roxanne remembered that around this time, Butch became very controlling of her mom. Butch was not employed and put a lot of pressure on Sarah to bring money in for the both of them. As Roxanne got older, she began to realize that Butch didn't have any friends of his own. Her mom had many friends. Her warmth and generosity made it easy for her. Once they were together, Sarah's friends started to become Butch's only friends. Four years later, in 2007, Sarah and Butch moved together to Maine. It has, confusingly, been reported that it was Sarah's idea, and also Butch's. Their marriage was at an all-time low, and Sarah thought that the move could give them a fresh start. Sarah loved lighthouses. She even used them as a decorative theme in her home, and Maine gave her plenty to explore with its 65 lighthouses along its hundreds of miles of coastline. Butch introduced her to camping, mountain biking, skiing, and snowshoeing. Every now and then, during their adventures, she would encounter injured wild animals she would take them home and nurse them to health. Sarah soon got a job as a nurse, and Butch got a job driving trucks for a hospital, transporting medical supplies. Her hiring manager at Central Maine Medical Center in Lewiston said that she hired Sarah because of her expertise at inserting and removing breathing tubes, but they kept her because of her compassion. Roxanne later explained, she was smart, energetic, loving, and cared deeply about her job. She was the sweetest person in the whole planet and saved many lives. Soon after getting this job, Sarah would purchase a home in Turner, Maine, which is a rural community about 20 minutes north of Lewiston. According to Roxanne, Butch didn't keep the truck driving job for long, and at one point, Sarah was working three different jobs along with the household chores and the cooking, while Butch was unemployed. Meanwhile, Roxanne got out of the military and made her way back to her home state of Michigan. By 2010, Sarah left Central Maine Medical and was pursuing additional schooling in respiratory therapy at the University of Southern Maine in their Lewiston-Auburn campus. Over the next two to three years, she finished her schooling and began teaching. It was early 2014, and she had had enough of Butch. Sarah called one of her daughters and said, I don't want to be a maid anymore. She moved back to Michigan by herself and moved in with her daughter, Roxanne, who by this point had married. She got a job as a traveling respiratory therapist serving Western Michigan with an outfit based in Grand Rapids called Maxim Health. Meanwhile, Butch lived alone in their house back in Turner, Maine. Despite the fact that their marriage was on the rocks, Sarah took to Facebook in January 2014 and wrote, Happy anniversary to my sweet husband. A few years ago, we said I do and changed our lives forever. Roxanne recalled that during the time that her mom lived in Maine, she had little contact with the family. 
She never discussed personal problems and would have no trouble keeping up a happy facade on Facebook. Roxanne later said, Obviously, something had happened in Maine, but she never told us what it was. Roxanne later found a letter from Butch to her mom, tucked into the back of a Bible. A line in it read, I'm doing the things that you want me to do. Apparently, Butch was trying to win her back, and it seems that Sarah may have given him an ultimatum. By May of 2014, six months after she returned, Sarah decided to give it another go with Butch. He, too, left Maine and returned to Michigan. They moved in together, renting a house about 45 minutes southwest of Grand Rapids in a tiny town called Fenville. It was out in the country, and the house was owned by a nearby dairy farm. Evidently, Sarah still owned the house in Turner, but by the fall of 2014, she sold it back to the bank that held the mortgage. Butch said that he had gotten a job as a truck driver. Roxanne would sometimes take him to the truck yard on Sundays and pick him up on Friday. He had a GPS, a road atlas, and a cooler that Sarah had packed for him. Though they didn't know it at the time, Butch may not have worked at all, and this may have just been a charade. No records have been found of him working for a truck company in late 2014. Also unbeknownst to the rest of the family, Sarah and Butch were unable to pay their bills in November and December of 2014. They were in dire financial straits. In early January of 2015, Sarah told her daughter, Roxanne, that Butch had been acting odd. He would sometimes take her car and disappear for hours and hours. She confronted him about it, and he said that his secret errands were for their upcoming anniversary on January 18th. That seemed to mollify her. Still, Roxanne and Sarah's mother, Carolyn, had both offered her a place to stay if she needed to leave. Roxanne later said, we would have packed her up and moved her out of there. Sarah told another friend of hers that Butch was becoming more distant and had asked a different friend if she could stay with her for a little bit. On either Friday, January 9th or Saturday, January 10th, Roxanne had her final call with her mother. They had a tradition of celebrating Christmas after the New Year, and they were making plans for their belated celebration. Sarah mentioned again that Butch's behavior seemed odd. She gave the example that he bumped into her in the hallway of their home like she wasn't even there. Butch was a big guy, too, six foot four inches and around 250 pounds. On Saturday, January 10th, she called her best friend Ellen, but Ellen didn't pick up. Sarah also sent her a Facebook message that said, I tried to call you. Ellen never got the chance to speak to Sarah again. She still feels guilty today because she wonders if this was a call for help. Also, on Saturday, Butch went to the bank and withdrew $1,250 from their joint account. He was starting to liquidate their remaining assets. He was searching around on the internet for how to hurt someone and different ways to murder people. On Sunday, January 11th, Butch put his plan into action. He strangled Sarah to death in their home with a ligature around her neck. Butch was 66 years old and Sarah was 48. Roxanne remembered calling her mom but got no answer. Butch remained with Sarah's body through Sunday night. 
On Monday, he went back to the bank and closed their account, leaving with $3,314. Police later reviewed the bank's surveillance footage. He went to a firing range near Grand Rapids and did some target practice and bought a 40 caliber Glock handgun and 40 rounds of armor-piercing ammunition. He also pawned his rifle. Again, Roxanne called her mom without an answer, and she was growing concerned. Butch took her money and then took off in her light blue-green 2009 Subaru Forester. Another night passed, and the house that Sarah and Butch shared in Fenville grew cold. He had turned off the heat. On Tuesday morning, around 8 a.m., Butch called 911. This is the actual 911 call. And what can I help you? On Sunday, January 11th, uh-huh. I strangled her. Your dad, that's his land on the living room floor. And what's your name, please? Uh, that's not important. I'm getting ready to leave the country, but we need to get law enforcement out there to do whatever they do with dead bodies. The call came from the southwest region of Michigan, near Ann Arbor, based on cell tower records. Butch sounded calm, assertive, and to the point. Sarah's best friend, Ellen, later said, That is so typical of Butch. So calculating, so in control, and such an idiot to be so callous and cold. Deputies from the Allegan County Sheriff's Office raced to the home. It was bitter cold, negative seven degrees Fahrenheit. About a foot of crusty, densely packed snow was on the ground. The driveway leading up to the two-car garage was plowed. Cops approached the side door of the property, the entry closest to the garage, ready to break in if necessary. The door was locked, but Butch had left the key to the house on the small wooden landing on the top of the stairs right next to the door. They were frozen to the landing. Officers managed to pry them up and unlock the door. They discovered Sarah's body immediately. It was in clear view and covered with a sheet. They checked her for signs of life, but she was gone, icy cold to the touch. Her body was very well preserved because of the frigid cold. Even the water in the toilet bowl was frozen rock solid. The place was tidy and clean. Butch had laid things out for the cops on the dining room table. A red-colored hanging file folder lay open. On the left were some sheets of white copy paper with handwritten instructions of who to contact in her family. On the right were some business cards and photos of Sarah. Just to the right of the folder was her driver's license. There were post-it notes, scrapbooks, and personal items placed around her body. Her phone and its passcode were left on the table. A note, written in red marker, read as follows. 1-11-15, approximately 3 p.m. Sarah Knight is in heaven with her maker and the angels. In fact, Sarah is an angel now. There were ligature marks on her neck, but no other obvious traumatic injuries. Though he hadn't yet been identified, police assumed that the 911 caller was Butch. He was later ID'd by his son by his voice. An APB went out to look for the 2009 Subaru Forester that was registered to Sarah with Michigan license plate GM74A. Butch had cleared the place out of all of his personal belongings, taking all photos of himself. 
Tiny nails dotted the walls, leaving hints where picture frames once hung. Police had to get a photo of Butch from Sarah's family to send out to law enforcement. Police were able to get a hold of Roxanne's husband, who immediately contacted her and told her to get back to work. When she arrived, there were police cars waiting for her in the parking lot. They asked her to come inside with them, where they broke the news that her mother was gone. She thought that they meant she was missing, so she offered to help them find her, thinking that perhaps her mother was upset after losing a patient and it went off on her own. Once she understood that they meant she was dead, she thought that perhaps it was an accident and that Butch might have died as well. She had never considered the possibility that Butch would have hurt her mother. When reporters started approaching her before she could even leave the parking lot, she knew it was no accident. But it wasn't until she saw her mother's body laying at the morgue that the truth of the situation finally set in. The next day, an arrest warrant was issued for Harold Butch Knight for murder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Cops canvassed the area, checking with the sparse neighbors. Chris Manier, who lived nearby, said that he had met Butch and that he remembered seeing them walk in the neighborhood together. He thought that they were a nice couple, but he said, in more recent months, he would only see Butch on the walks. An autopsy was conducted. It supported what Butch had said, that she had died on the 11th. With Butch heading east, police thought that he might be headed back to Maine. Though they no longer owned the house in Turner, they had cops check it nonetheless, but it was empty. It was a manhunt. Butch was on the run. From Thursday, January 15th to Monday, January 19th, Butch stayed at the Town and Lake Motel in Rangeley, Maine. Rangeley is in mountainous western Maine, just 20 to 30 miles from the Canadian border. He paid cash and used a fake name. He had a brief chat with a motel owner who asked him what brought him to Maine. He replied, snowmobiling. On the second day of his stay, Friday, January 16th, he drove to the nearest Walmart, which was 43 miles away in Farmington, Maine. He was caught on surveillance leaving the store, dressed head to toe in camouflage, wearing what looks like a Russian hat. His mustache is no longer gray, but dyed black and he looks like the cartoon version of an older, portly Russian soldier. He appears to be having car problems, looking under the hood of his wife's Subaru. He closes the hood, grabbing a suitcase from the vehicle, and walks off. He gets into another vehicle, and they leave the parking lot together, and that's the end of the footage. Police were later able to track this person down and he revealed that Butch offered him $100 to drive him back to Rangeley because his car broke down. He agreed. The next day, Saturday, January 17th, Sarah's mother, Carolyn, got a package in the mail. It was one of those white priority mailboxes you get at the post office. 
there were three words written on the front in all caps in a black sharpie. Very important. Read. As soon as Carolyn brought it inside, she knew who it was from and called 911. It contained a letter from Butch, the details of which have not been made public. The police tracked the package to its origin, a quiet post office in small-town Rumford, Maine. It was sent the previous day, the day that Butch was stranded at Walmart. Rumford, the location of the post office, Rangeley, where he was staying at the motel, and Farmington, the location of the Walmart, form a triangle. Each leg of the triangle is about 45 minutes. Perhaps Butch picked Rumford to mail it because it was suitably far from where he was staying. By Tuesday, funeral arrangements for Sarah were underway. She had no life insurance, and they were still sorting out her assets. Her friend Tammy organized a fundraiser to help with funeral costs, and over the weeks following, raised $2,791. Roxanne, despite the nationwide manhunt for Butch, still struggled to see him as a suspect. She said, I hope he's brought in unharmed. I just hope he's going to be found, and found alive, so we can get our answers. Police went to the press with a request to the public for help. They couldn't find Butch. They provided contact information for the Allegan County Sheriff's Office and an anonymous crime tip line. Hall Kokotovich Funeral Home in Sarah's hometown of Gladwin, Michigan, were handling her arrangements. But there were so many people planning to attend her service that they had to find a larger venue. At noon on January 24th, in a small town in nearby Beaverton, people gathered at Cedar River Chapel, a non-denominational church, to celebrate her life. While her friends and family were putting her to rest, U.S. Marshals were working 24-7 on her behalf, trying to catch her killer. A supervisor told the press, We really don't know why he went to Maine or what he's doing, what his endgame is going to be here, if he's trying to be a fugitive for a while, live on the lam, or if he has some goals, something he wants to do before he turns himself in. On January 31st, the 18th day of Butch being on the run, Authorities discovered the Subaru Forester, abandoned in the Walmart in Farmington. Walmart had called the Farmington police, saying there was a car in the parking lot that had been there a while, with North Carolina plates. When police ran the VIN, a long number unique to every vehicle, it came back to Sarah. It's unknown where he got the plates from. The Farmington police reported it to the Maine State Police, who had it impounded. The Allegan County Sheriff's Office got the data from the built-in GPS unit in the vehicle and traced Butch's route from Michigan to Maine. The only thing that they made public was that he stopped at a lot of truck stops along the way. They were able to pin down the motel he stayed at in Rangeley and learned that the day he checked out, a snowmobile festival was taking place, which roused suspicion that he might have hitched a ride over the Canadian border. But even into February of 2015, there were sightings of Butch in the Rangeley area. It was a great time to be invisible. It was a cold and snowy winter, and he looked like the everyman of backcountry Maine, dressed in warm camouflage clothing and hats. There are many back roads and lakes and small rustic shelters called camps in the woods, lakes, and hills of western Maine. And authorities thought that he could be hiding out 
off the grid. Leads were drying out, and it seemed to be mostly a waiting game, waiting for Butch to slip up. As the weeks turned into months, Roxanne and her family wondered if they were in danger. Did Butch have plans for her as well? The idea that someone could live undetected indefinitely in the United States in 2015 seemed utterly impossible. What would he do with his numbered days? The ice and snow that blanketed western Maine began to thaw, and unplowed roads became passable. Spring warmed the spirits of Mainers and vacationers, and authorities hoped the new eyeballs roaming the countryside, returning to their camps, would reveal his hideout. A note of caution was offered to residents, though. Butch Knight was considered armed and dangerous. On May 16th, they got a clue. Roxanne got a call from her cousin freaking out about something that had happened on Facebook. Sarah's account had liked a photo her cousin had posted from her recent vacation. No one had access to Sarah's account, and everyone presumed it was Butch who had logged in under her credentials. Roxanne believed that Butch took Sarah's laptop and Kindle with him when he fled, because they weren't in the house. Sarah was careful with her login credentials. The only record of them were on an encrypted drive that Roxanne couldn't even access. Police obtained a search warrant to see if they could get an IP address and any location information from the session. It was reported that Facebook responded to the search warrant in July, but he was not successful at retrieving any location data. Roxanne sometimes took to Facebook to write cryptic messages or even feisty poems to Butch. She knew he was watching. But maybe Butch had totally unplugged from the digital world. He always had an interest in the Amish community and lifestyle, and one theory was that he joined their ranks, people unlikely to see mugshots floating around online because of their avoidance of technology. By May of 2015, the FBI was involved as well, meaning there were at least four organizations in the hunt. The Allegan County Sheriff's Department, the U.S. Marshals, the Maine State Police, and the FBI. Incredibly, Butch managed to remain undetected for the rest of 2015, inspiring lead detective with the Allegan County Sheriff's Office, Craig Gardner, to make a New Year's resolution to find Butch and bring him back to Michigan. While law enforcement had a mission, Sarah's family and friends were rudderless. Her mom, Carolyn, said, I won't be able to move on with my life until my daughter's killer is caught. Until that happens, I'm focused on honoring Sarah. All I gotta do is look at her picture. I go to bed telling her goodbye and wake up telling her hi. I'll never lose her. She'll always be with me. Roxanne said, Mom was just the type that took care of everything. She was like everybody's rock. We're just lost without her. We're completely lost. Roxanne's phone was no longer lighting up. She said, I truly miss the annoying phone calls a hundred times a day. I can remember my mom saying, I just wanted to say hi. And I would be like, dude, I'm so busy. And she would say, I know. I just wanted to say hi and see what you were doing. I miss those phone calls. Roxanne wanted to do something to help the investigation. So she started to raise reward money. She began by making custom printed pink t-shirts that read, 
no evil goes unpunished. Justice for Sarah. In January of 2016, police released to the public the contents of the package Butch had sent to Sarah's mother. It contained a rambling four-page letter that attacked Carolyn and other relatives for a family rift that had developed over the years. It also brought up some bad blood over how Butch and Sarah were disciplining, quote, their rambunctious daughter, Angelica. Roxanne referred to this note as a hit list because it specifically named people and Butch's complaints about them. The note also spoke to Butch's motive. He said, I had to do what I had to do to make a coin or two. Enclosed my approximate daily take, $2,000 cash, on my drug sales to help pay for Sarah's cremation expense. You know damn well Sarah wanted to be cremated at her death, and you better have done cremation. Sarah didn't agree or understand my new way of making a coin or two to supplement income. Sarah pissed me off, and I had to do what I had to do to keep my drug sales incoming. Sarah became a liability to me, and assets, income, overpower liabilities every day. Over and out. He threw in taunts to the police as well, saying, The murder is done. I'm free as a bird now. And... I was five to ten feet away from Captain Baker. Maybe I was supposed to do an interview. He didn't show a lot of interest. They're not smart enough to catch me. I will turn myself in when I feel I want to, and I will never spend a day in jail. The family doubted his motive, and police have found no evidence that Butch was peddling narcotics. The family believes that she was going to leave him, and that is why he killed her. A friend of Sarah's believed that the money in the request to have her cremated was not about honoring her wishes, but about Butch asserting control over Sarah, even in death. On January 11, 2016, the one-year anniversary of her death, Sarah's family held a candlelight vigil in Gladwin in a park that she would often bring her kids. It was winter again, and there had been no sign of Butch for seven months. On the two-year anniversary, Law enforcement gave an interview to Fox 17 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. A U.S. Marshal Fugitive Task Force supervisor expressed surprise that Butch had managed to stay under the radar. He said, In the last year, we followed up with leads from coast to coast, from North Carolina to Texas to the West Coast and in between, all the way up to Alaska. He commented on Butch's looks, saying that he looked like everyone's 68-year-old father or grandfather. He believed that Butch was quietly earning cash with some skills that he'd accumulated over his life, explaining, He has a pilot's license. He's a pretty accomplished woodworker. He did some time in the Navy. He has a computer background. He has training in accounting and was a truck driver for a number of years. He emphasized a few things about Butch to keep in mind. He is hard of hearing. He has a scar on his stomach. And he has an interest in specialty health foods. He said there was no evidence that Butch made it to Canada. On the four-year anniversary, Sarah's case was featured on the show In Pursuit with John Walsh. The episode was entitled Tragic Entanglement. They interviewed Roxanne and a friend of Sarah's for the episode. They showed to the public, for the first time, some of the letters that Butch had written to the family. Some stills from that show and other photos can be found at MurderSheTold.com. 
Some people theorize that Butch may have died, though if he did, it's unlikely that his body has been recovered. He was getting older at the time he killed Sarah, and he had some health issues. He may have avoided going to a hospital where his identity might be discovered, and by doing so, may have put his life in jeopardy. Or he may have tried to live in the woods in Maine, but succumbed to the conditions. He may have had an accident on a snowmobile, or on foot in the woods, that could have stranded him in the remotest regions of the state. Another theory is that Butch met another woman and has ingratiated himself with a new family, oblivious of his past. He was very successful at hiding his violent nature from his wife and her family once. Why not again? Roxanne and Carolyn still struggle with the question of why Butch took Sarah's life. In his letter, he said that she was getting in the way of his drug business. They find that difficult to believe. But if not that, then what? As they reflected on Butch, they realized that they didn't know Butch that well. Roxanne remembered him as quiet and distant, something of a loner. Still, she felt like he was someone she could really trust. She set aside her unease and blamed it on his age. She said... We always figured he was just a grumpy old man. She couldn't make sense of the conflict between him and her mother. She said, I know why they were having financial problems, but beyond that, I don't know what could have caused friction between them. Nothing made sense. She never pressed her mother on their relationship, and her mother never offered details. She wishes she had asked more questions. Perhaps her reluctance to wade into that turbulent territory was a result of the pain from her difficult childhood with them. She said, We didn't make it easy on our mother, but he didn't either. He made us out to be the problem, but he was the problem. Ellen Stanley, Sarah's best friend, was skeptical of Butch from the beginning. In her interview with Unsolved Mysteries podcast, she said, The first time I met him, my thoughts were probably... Oh crap, what has she gotten herself into? He was an arrogant, controlling idiot. He thought he was smarter than everyone else, and he didn't mind that you knew that he thought that. He was mouthy. Ellen pulled no punches, saying, I don't know what Sarah saw in him. He was an overbearing control freak who kept her on a very short leash. He controlled what they ate, where they lived, and who she talked to. She brought her paycheck home to him. You just don't tell Butch what you're going to do. He tells you what you're going to do. Ellen believes that the decision to take Sarah's life was about pride. Quote, that was all his ego. He couldn't lose. She was either with him or she was dead. You don't defy Butch. Ellen thinks that death would be too good for him, saying, I hope he's alive and not a bag of bones somewhere. I want him to know he lost. He didn't get the last laugh. Carolyn, Sarah's mother, struggles with her own bitterness about the situation, saying, I don't understand why they haven't gotten him. Butch is 6'6 six, six and about 250 to 300 pounds. You can't miss him. Yet the police did miss him. He told them what he did, even wrote me a letter. He's making a fool of them. I can't get past it. He's got to be caught. I've got to know why he killed her when he pretended to love her so much. And I guess I need to know that he's not as smart as he thought he was. It will only take a single misstep for Butch to be found. 
Perhaps his hubris will be his undoing. Harold Wesley Knight, who goes by Butch, is white, male, about six foot five inches tall, 250 to 300 pounds, balding with gray hair that may be dyed black, hazel eyes, and a mustache. He is hard of hearing. He may have diabetes, and he has a scar on his abdomen. Please contact the U.S. Marshals at 1-877-WANTED-2 or leave a tip online at usmarshals.gov tips. Thank you so much for listening. I always say it, but I couldn't do this without you, and I'm incredibly grateful you're here. If you want to support the show or buy me a coffee, there's a link in the show notes with options to support. Follow Murder, She Told on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. A detailed list of sources and photos from this story can be found at MurderSheTold.com. Thank you to Byron Willis for his writing and research, and to Bridget Rowley and Erica Pierce for their research. If you have a case you want to suggest or even a correction, you can email me at hello at MurderSheTold.com. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told. Thank you for listening. Thank you.